Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, the podcast of the LSE's U.S. Center. I'm Chris Gilson. Each episode will bring you the latest academic research and commentary on U.S. politics and policy. On this episode of The Ballpark, we're taking a look at the U.S.'s economic recovery and how its benefits might not have been felt by everyone equally across the country. President Obama gave his final State of the Union address in January. This wasn't only his last chance to take up policy priorities or highlight the issues that he thinks the government needs to address. It was his last chance to use the State of the Union to highlight the progress that's occurred during his presidency. And when it came to the economy, he did just that. Let me start with the economy and a basic fact. The United States of America, right now, has the strongest, most durable economy in the world. We're in the middle of the longest streak of private sector job creation in history. More than 14 million new jobs, the strongest two years of job growth since the 1990s, an unemployment rate cut in half. Obama and his allies want to give his administration credit for the economic recovery that he mentioned in his final State of the Union address. And that made us think, the strongest economy for who? I'm here with my co-hosts, Sophie Donzelman and Denise Barron, both members of the team here at the LSE US Center. Today we'll be talking about how the recovery hasn't quite managed to reach everyone, and what policymakers are trying to do about that. So during Obama's State of the Union, he said that anyone who said that the U.S. economy was in decline was peddling fiction. That's a pretty bold statement. Denise, what what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it it was a pretty clear allusion to a number of the Republicans who are still vying for uh, the nomination for the 2016 presidential election. And he made even more bold comments about how This is the strongest economy in the world right now. But he even admitted that this doesn't seem to be an even recovery, that there are plenty of people who are still struggling. So this made me wonder, made me think, who's still struggling? You know, is this an industry-specific thing that's going on? Is it geographic? I'm curious to see, you know, are there, is there more to the numbers than meets the eye? Sophie, what did you think? So after he conceded that maybe not everyone is benefiting, he moved on to talk about education and the No Child Left Behind Act and the need to cut college tuition as if doing those things and implementing those policies would be the solution to help everyone benefit from this economy. And I think what we'll hear today is that maybe that's not the case. Just to follow on from that, I'm really interested to see what's happening elsewhere. There's a lot of gridlock in Congress and and as recent events have proven, it's difficult for Obama to get his agenda on the minimum wage, on prosperity for, for all through. So it's going to be really interesting to look at, you know, what are the states doing, what's happening, where, where's, where's successful, where's not. What does this recovery look like in different cities across the U.S.? How does the recent recovery compare to other periods of economic change? And has everyone benefited from the recovery? These are just a couple of the questions that we'll dive into this week. First up, we'll be talking to Michael Amior of the University of Cambridge and the LSE Center for Economic Performance. He's been looking at why joblessness has been so persistent in some U.S. cities. Then we'll be talking to Jeff Clements of the University of California at San Diego. He's looked at how the minimum wage actually isn't so helpful for some groups. Then we'll be throwing out those two interviews for discussion. Obama talks about the U.S.'s economic power, but it seems that all recovery isn't created equal. Some cities seem to be bouncing back better than others. 
We've all seen the ruined porn of the Rust Belt cities, such as Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. These once thriving urban areas have been in decline for decades, and there's been little sign that the recovery has reached them. Unemployment is a big problem, and it's one that doesn't seem to be going away in these cities. Is there anything governments can do to address this? So unfortunately, there isn't an easy answer to this question. That's Michael Amior. He's a college lecturer in economics at St. Catherine's College, University of Cambridge, and a research associate at the Center for Economic Performance at LSE. Together with the LSE's professor, Alan Manning, he's been looking at why joblessness has been so persistent in some U.S. cities. So in this research, what we've been trying to understand is is why um, joblessness is so persistent over so many decades at the local level. And his research can help us see that some cities simply aren't recovering as well as others. So we've studied this using U.S. census data going back to 1950. And we've divided the country up into 722 commuting zones in the continental U.S. at least, which are comprehensive of the entire continental U.S. And I'll, I'll refer to these from henceforth as cities for ease. Within those 722 cities... Michael zeroed in on those cities that have been hit the hardest, the ones that have lost lots of jobs and lots of inhabitants over the last 60 years. Since Michael is analyzing over half a century's worth of data, he was able to put the economic recession and the recent recovery in the historical and economic context of any of these cities. And what he found makes sense. Despite what many commentators have said about unemployment in these places being high because people don't move away, he found that as jobs leave cities, people leave cities. But he also found something that was more surprising. And what we found is that the employment rate in a given city in 1950 is actually a very strong predictor for the employment rate in that same city 60 years on. So joblessness is very persistent over time at the local level. Basically, unemployment rates, when you look at the numbers for specific cities, actually stay pretty consistent over the years. But that sets up a puzzle. How is it then that employment rates are so persistent over time in cities? And the answer that we give, the data suggests, is that there's really a huge amount of persistence in employment growth um, across cities. So, for example, um, those, cit- those cities which shared many manufacturing jobs in the 60s and 70s continue to shed manufacturing jobs today. And those cities that saw a huge contraction of employment in 19 fi- between 1950 and 1980 are very likely to experience a similarly large contraction of employment between 1980 and 2010. Let's flesh this out with a hypothetical example. Let's say that unemployment was at 13% in, say, any town, Indiana, back in 1950. Over the years, a couple of manufacturing-related factories shut down, and plenty of people in any town lose their jobs. So when they lose their jobs, people leave town, and any town's population is cut in half over the decades. So as jobs leave, people leave. And interestingly, the unemployment rate so the actual percentage of unemployed people in town, it stays the same. According to Michael's research, we shouldn't actually be surprised to see that any town still has a high unemployment rate that's above 10% 60 years later in 2010, because the population has shrunk as jobs have disappeared. Basically, cities that were contracting before the recession are still going to head in that direction afterwards, while cities that were growing before the recession have rebounded and are starting to grow again, such as Denver, Colorado, or Atlanta, Georgia. So the national economic recovery that Obama highlighted in the State of the Union isn't going to pull Rust Belt cities and other declining metros up and out of this downward trend. Then what will? Can state or local governments fix this? So there isn't really an easy answer to this question. A lot of people, um, like we've already said, have argued that the key problem here is sluggish population adjustment. But our research suggests that that's not the first order issue. The most important problem seems to be this 
long-run, persistent contraction of employment. And in order to address that, what we really need to do is to diversify the local industrial base. However, it's not clear to what extent policy can help this process along. I mean, for example, in the case of Seattle, it's not clear to what extent good po- policy enable this outcome. There might be there might be room for government, for example, in encouraging um, the growth of um, historical universities, which may bring in students, demand, and te- um, new technology firms, and so forth. But we don't really have strong evidence on how policy can help um, in this area. What about creative local investment ideas that we've seen in recent years? Some cities have tried to reverse these downward economic and population trends by enticing new, high-skilled people to move there with attractive loans for opening up businesses or starting new enterprises. It's possible. Um, these sorts of policies have been attempted in different countries in the past, but the evidence on, on the success of these policies is, is often quite mixed. One particular problem with area-based policymaking is that while it may help the particular area which you're focusing on, um, it, it may also just be displacing economic activity from other areas, so the net effect might not be positive overall. Whether or not we'll see more policy initiatives like this in the future remains to be seen. But the stories of these cities remind us that even though the Commander-in-Chief is touting economic recovery, there are pockets of the US that have struggled, are struggling, and may continue to struggle in the future. Every year, Gallup produces what they call a worry metric, which covers what Americans are most concerned about. For the most part, people are worried about money, and have been since the onset of the Great Recession in 2008. In response to people's financial concerns, the Obama administration, as well as state and city governments led by Democrats, have been pushing for increases in the minimum wage to help low-earning workers. Jeff Clemens of the University of California, San Diego, stopped by the LSE recently. Hello. Yep. And I spoke with him about his new research, which looks at what happens to workers when you do raise the minimum wage. So, so I guess by way of uh, initial overview, so this, this project involves kind of an interest in what's been going on in the labor market in the United States, in particular the labor market for relatively low-skilled workers over the period that kind of surrounds the, uh, the Great Recession and the housing decline. And what's sort of particularly striking is that during this period, employment among sort of particularly low-skilled workers declined by on the order of kind of 13 percentage points uh, across the country. And this, these kind of low-skilled workers' employment rate really hasn't experienced anything by way of, of, re- of recovery um, since the recession, whereas the employment of relatively higher-skilled workers has come pretty close to, to where it was uh, prior to the recession. Basically, lower-skilled workers weren't bouncing back, while other groups were starting to do just about as well as they were before the recession. Dr. Clemens saw different things happening with different groups, and his research highlights one reason why. And so this kind of launches, uh, you know, labor and public finance economists on a search for potential explanations for that incredibly slower, or in this case, kind of non-recovery of employment among the low-skilled folks. A variety of ex- potential explanations are in play, and the potential explanation that I'm pushing on in this research project is the fact that this was also a period when some fairly significant increases in the minimum wage were were enacted. That's right. Dr. Clemens believes that raising the minimum wage stalled the economic recovery for low-skill workers, or at the very least, weakened it. So how did he come to this conclusion? 
So given that this was a period of recession, the kind of key question for any empirical research project is going to be how are we potentially going to you know, disentangle the effects of the recession from the minimum wage increases, which were the policy change of interest. And conveniently for those purposes, uh, this was a period where the minimum wage increases that went into effect were mandated by the federal government. Uh, and because some of the U.S. states already had minimum wage rates that were largely in compliance with the new minimum, uh, minimum wage requirements, those states were essentially unbound by the federal increase, whereas other states were sort of bound to increase their, their minimums by the, by the full amount. He basically had a ready-made comparison. Some states had to raise their minimum wage because of a federal mandate, while other states didn't, because theirs was already high enough. And sort of a, a moderate share of this very large 13 percentage point decline in employment among this, this, this group of low-skilled workers can, in fact, sort of be explained by the minimum wage increases that went into effect. According to his model, almost half of the decline in jobs can be explained by the increase in the minimum wage. Something on the order of 40 percent of that 13 percentage point decline. Minimum wage goes up, but low-skilled jobs go down. Just as a bit of background, in the states that he studied, the minimum wage went up 70 cents each year for three years, starting at 5.15 per hour in early 2007, ending at 725 in 2009. Those amounts in that time frame make you wonder, why then, and why that much? Uh, well, the, the, why, the why that much is, is always kind of a mystery, I think, in terms of the, in the world of minimum wage policy. The why then sort of just generally reflected, I think, the kind of uh, ebbs and flows of, of, um, of the U.S. policy debate as it pertains to kind of support for, you know, for, for low-income uh, low families. So the federal minimum had, had not been increased since the, uh, since the mid-1990s at this time, so its kind of real value had eroded uh, a, fair, a fair bit. Um, some of your more sort of progressive or, or left-leaning states had sort of gone out on their own and had you know, increased their minimum wage rates over the course of this period. And shortly after the Democratic Party took over the Congress in, in 2006, they used that opportunity to pass a federal minimum wage increase, and that's what uh, precisely uh, the policy changes that, that I'm analyzing in this paper. Of course, the forces at play are more complicated than one piece of legislation that specifically increased the wages of one group. In social science, we are kind of never in the ideal, you know, randomized control trial that we think of as being the gold standard in, in medical science. We're sort of stuck with analyzing the world as we see it and the policy changes as they're implemented by, um, you know, by the powers that be. So Dr. Clemens looked for what researchers like him call counterfactual groups. So groups that, that, that form sort of plausible uh, comparisons for what would have happened to the people whose, you know, whose minimum wage rates were, uh, were affected. Remember, some states had to raise their minimum wage by 70 cents each year, while others saw no changes during this time. This makes for a simple comparison. And so, so in this study, that, uh, there are two layers of comparison that we work with. The first is the one that, that we've already been discussing, which is, um, which is the fact that some states were bound to increase their minimum wage rates by non-trivially more than other states. And so the baseline comparison is of the very lowest skilled workers in the states that were bound to increase their minimum wage rates by a lot relative to the low skilled workers in the states that were um, bound to increase their minimum wage rates by less or by, or by nothing at all. And then in, in, in the paper, there's a second layer of analysis, which is that we also compare the very lowest skilled workers whose wage rates were in fact bound by the minimum wage increases to workers who are kind of modestly higher skilled, but had wages such that, that, the, that their employers were not required to increase their, uh, their minimum wage rates. Essentially, he compared similar workers. 
but the biggest difference between them is that some were affected by the wage increase while the others weren't. Again, a simple comparison. He has these clear comparisons. Now what about the timing? Are the results of these comparisons inherently tied to the recession? Dr. Clemens says you have to look at both the recession as well as some broader trends that currently impact low-skilled workers. Those things taken together give a better sense of why an increase in the minimum wage had such a significant and negative impact on the employment of precisely the people who you'd think would be helped by higher minimum wages. So in general, the kind of returns or the wages that are, that are being kind of earned by relatively low-skilled folks in the U.S. labor market have, have, been, have been going down in real, in real terms over time. So this, this was sort of very much on display over the, over the course of the Great Recession, but it actually you know, kind of reflects much sort of broader and long-running long forces that include kind of you know, substitution of, of sort of new production uh, technologies or capital equipment for low-skilled workers. Also kind of the, there's, there's, there's uh, important research that documents the, the relevance of kind of increasing, increasing trade with with countries like China that have you know large stocks of relatively low skilled workers that are also sort of implicitly becoming substitutes for the labor of low skilled workers in the United States, uh, as as well as you know immigration, which increases the supply of low skilled workers and also would kind of put downward pressure on low skilled workers' wages. And so, as these forces have unfolded over time, it becomes the case that you know sort of a given value of the minimum wage will be increasingly binding on the wage distribution of relatively low-skilled workers. From technology to immigration to global trade, he's saying these workers are impacted by a number of major forces right now. And so I, I very much suspect that, um, that, that those forces are, are at work sort of in, in concert with the minimum wage increases that, that I was analyzing. Let's put that main number from his findings back into perspective, given all of the information. Dr. Clemens found that almost half of a 13% drop in employment of low-skill workers could be explained by the increases of the minimum wage. So who are those workers? Um, in terms of breakdowns across, across demographic groups, so we've done a little bit of, of kind of digging into that. According to his study, younger people definitely get hit harder in this scenario. The, the one thing that's sort of most striking is that the minimum wage is certainly more binding on the wage distributions of relatively young workers relative to older workers, so there is a larger effect on, on the young relative to the old. If increasing the minimum wage is actually increasing unemployment, especially among those people who are just entering the workforce and beginning their careers, is it counterproductive for the federal government to raise the minimum wage in hopes of generating economic stimulus for those at the very bottom? Should they mandate a raise at all? And if so, how much? Yeah, so, I, so I, I, kind of, I prefer to stay away from the particulars of shouting out a number and saying, you know, this is what I think the, uh, the ideal minimum wage is. And that, that partly just reflects what I think, you know, I think that social scientists need to have a certain modesty or humility when it comes to sort of acknowledging that within the U.S. there are a very large number of sort of distinctive labor markets, what might be a minimum wage that does, you know, more benefit than harm in one labor market might be much higher or lower than what you would think of as the optimal or ideal minimum wage in another market. My sort of default tendency is, is to support, you know, policies that would increase the, you know, the earnings or well-being of low-skilled workers through, you know, tax-financed wage subsidies that would come from, you know, society as a whole deciding to pay higher taxes and to let those flow directly from the government, you know, into the pockets of low-skilled workers, as opposed to expecting these transfers to kind of take place exclusively through, uh, through the, the wage regulation mechanism. In other words, if forcing businesses to increase the minimum wage results in less jobs, then maybe taxpayers should pitch in and foot the bill. We'll come back to this idea.
So I'm joined now by my two co-hosts, Sophie and Denise. Thinking about the, the first uh, interview on joblessness, Denise, how did it change your perspective on, on the recent recovery? It completely changed the way that I look at cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh because from my perspective, these are cities that had been hit really hard in the recent recession and they had skyrocketing unemployment rates, but then things were going to turn around with this recovery. It never occurred to me that this was simply a trend that was going to be affected by the recession, but these local factors, the jobless rates in these specific cities, are along lines, are along trends that are a lot more deeply rooted in local ways than national trends of a recession or recovery. So Sophie, one thing that he didn't mention in uh, in this particular interview, but he does mention his research is about the role of commuting. How big do you think a piece of the puzzle is commuting, is, is public transport in, in cities like Detroit? I think public transport is a huge issue that needs to be addressed, but unfortunately isn't. Um, it's not a political priority, and I think it suffers so much because of just the poor infrastructure that is in place. We had that Amtrak crash in May of 2015, and all of this is linked to poor infrastructure, poor funding of public transport, and the fact that it's just not a political priority. Amir said that commuting is increasing, mm. but I think the greater issue here is public transportation, yeah. mm. and perhaps we need to improve our public transportation um, to have greater commuting numbers that gives more people greater access to jobs. Um, and instead, I think the United States is a country that relies so heavily on their cars, 809 per every 1,000 people own a car, which is a staggering number, especially if you compare it to Europe. When he was talking about the, the persistence over the last 60 years or so of jobless rates, I'd be interested to hear about the, the rate of car ownership mm. and seeing how that, how that connects to jobless rates in any of these cities that might have been in decline or if that helped increase uh, employment because people were able to live farther away from their jobs and then commute. To, sorry, to take up that point, um, it's really interesting you talk about the rise of cars because one thing a lot of studies do find is that you know, if you have these really sprawling suburbs, you end up having this big, massive urban infrastructure that a city council or a city administration has to deal with. And so what happened in Detroit, as far as I'm aware, is as people leave, the tax base really, really shrinks. But yet you still have this massive amount of road structure. Okay, you don't have the public transport anymore. But you still have all these roads that need to be maintained. There's a few people who are living out in what used to be the suburbs of much smaller density. They need water. They need power. You've got to have police patrols going out there. You've got to have fire patrols out there. And so you have this kind of shelled out, hollowed out, husk of a city that still has this kind of similar city limits that it used to that kind of the costs haven't really changed right but there's there's no tax money coming in to fund public investment to fund infrastructure and it kind of it just snowballs and then they ended up where they are now i think what's also interesting um back to kind of america's car culture is that it is exactly that at your sweet 16 the mark of adulthood you get a car cars and chevy trucks are in every bruce springsteen song um, I think, like, car ownership and the idea that this is your vehicle and becomes part of your life doesn't bode well for the development of public transportation. I mean, it really speaks to that American idea of freedom yeah. and the idea of being able to jump in your car and kind of go wherever you want and do whatever. And let's not forget Detroit was the motor city. So if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to be Detroit. And it's interesting sitting in London 
when most people that I know and I suspect you guys know don't have cars, it's sort of fun. everyone takes the bus, everyone takes public transport, and it's really interesting to see the difference in comparing it to to the states where public transport, as you said, is is sort of in New York and Chicago and a couple other places, but anywhere smaller than that, anywhere that's outside those East Coast, uh, West Coast centers, this doesn't this doesn't exist. And to bring it back to, to jobs and rates of employment, this conversation of cars is reminding me of lyrics from a band I love. I don't know if you listen to the Metric, but they have a song where you say, buy this car to drive to work, drive to work to pay for this car, buy this car to drive to work, drive to work. <laughs> and I love that because it makes sense that Michael's looking at both of them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's go into the second interview with Jeff Clemens talking about minimum wage. So... Chris, one of the things that really struck me about this interview and and his research overall is that it's a little counterintuitive for most people who are advocates of the minimum wage. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, I, and just as a disclaimer, I am I am personally a fan of the minimum wage, and I think it should increase. And this interview really threw me, actually. His findings really threw me because most of the stuff I've read and, and the studies I've seen have showed that the minimum wage has no effects on unemployment or relatively minor effects. And then now to hear that raising a minimum wage has a negative effect on, on these vulnerable groups, it's really striking. And I think what happens in a lot of these debates is very binary. The minimum wage is either great and increases people's welfare and has no, it's all rainbows and sunshine and has no effect on anyone's employability or employment, or it's terrible and everyone will lose their jobs and the minimum wage is the worst thing in the universe. So it's interesting to see something a bit more nuanced. And I know it certainly challenged my view and that's a good thing. So I think it's it's interesting research. Yeah, the thing that really struck me about it too is that it, it's just not the type of research that Democrats in the U.S. want to hear. They, they don't want to hear that their efforts to increase wages and quality of life for those people at the very bottom is actually backfiring and hurting those exact same groups. Mm. On the other hand, this is the very thing that, that Republicans and conservatives point to often as saying, when you force business to do something, you're gonna get adverse results because business owners know what's best for their business. If they have employees of a certain skill level, they're gonna pay them that amount. If they have only a few people to choose from, they're gonna be more scarce, they're gonna pay them better. If they have a huge population of potential workers, they'll pay them less. You know, they, they're saying that the business owner knows what's best for themselves, so the government shouldn't be forcing them to do anything. Yeah. This research says that when you force business owners to pay people a certain amount, they just can't hire as many people. One thing that he also brought in that I thought was interesting, I have sort of seen before, and, I, and you see a little bit in terms of policy, what's happening on the ground, is that this idea that you know you sh the minimum wage shouldn't just be universal. So the Democrats have come out and they're in favor of a, a $15 blanket minimum wage at the federal level. It's now 725, by the way. So you know we're talking about a greater than than doubling, which is huge, really, when you think about it. And so what what Jeff says in his research is that actually you've got to look at the cities, you've got to look at the regions. A regional minimum wage is it might be preferable. So a minimum, you know, in in San Francisco, a minimum wage should probably be more like 20 dollars an hour, whereas I suspect in some more deprived parts of the South, 725, 750, eight dollars is probably about right. I don't know. But having a blanket minimum wage is going to cause a huge amount of problems, especially in a country with 320-odd million people like the U.S., with a quite a dynamic labor market, with a lot of stuff going on, a lot of, as we've talked about with Detroit, a lot of some cities are doing very badly and some cities are doing much better. And so I think it's another interesting idea sort of to tease out 
and you can do it in the states the way you can't do it in the UK you can have more as they say the states are laboratories you can have more individual policies in mm -hmm. different places mm -hmm. yeah he's saying one size doesn't fit all I was very intrigued but a little cautious a um, little hesitant to hear him suggest that it should be the local voters who decide when to basically fund a minimum wage with tax dollars my gut reaction was well that's kind of already happening actually because you have these employers who are paying absolutely you know floor level wages and then their employees even though they're working 40 hours a week still have to be on food stamps still have to get subsidized housing and essentially their tax dollars are subsidizing these companies that are paying very low substandard wages. Back to what Denise was saying earlier is that when you force companies to do things they often can't and um, that they couldn't afford to employ more people. There was a small part of Jeff's research that really stuck with me and that was that Jeff said that people, companies rather, can't afford to hire more people and they don't and that's when you get this internship effect that when these college-educated young people are looking for entry-level jobs, companies who can't afford to pay that minimum wage of the desired $20 will just make them work for free. And because it's this vicious cycle of needing work experience to get a job, needing a job to afford these free work experiences, um, that kind of perpetuates this problem and the issues that we're talking about today. Chris, you've done a lot of work in the past over the years with the, the U.S. Center's blog on minimum wage. And listening to Jeff's interview, it was really making me wonder about what's going on in the specific states since he was studying things as they were changing in different states across the, across the country. So in a segment that we like to call state-specific, can you tell us a little bit more about the lay of the land across the country? I can. So I went back and looked over the last few years about what's going on, been going on. I, I, I knew that there had been various initiatives across the states sort of in complementing uh, what's happening at the federal level, at least the, the efforts at the federal level. I didn't realize how many there had been. There's, there's been lots and lots. So give a bit of, back, bit of background. Obama in 2015 raised the minimum wage for federal contracts to 1010. It's pretty obvious that Obama wants to raise the minimum wage for the whole country to, as I said before, the Democrats want it at $15. There's a heck of a lot of gridlock in Congress. It's not going to happen. So the states have taken it upon themselves to, through ballot measures or through various other initiatives, to have a go at raising the minimum wage. Now, some states have been less successful and some have more. So, so in Maine, in November last year, a ballot measure to raise the $15 lost, which was, uh, Maine is, you know, Kind of reasonably purple, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah, and it was a surprise. Very small population. Yeah. Um, Very interesting accent. Yeah. Um, to put it diplomatically. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of the commentary suggested that that would pass, and it didn't. And so, less surprisingly, in Virginia, in January last year, so a year ago, um, a minimum wage increase from eight dollars to ten ten was voted down by a Senate, a state Senate committee. Uh, and that would have been an increase to 1010 by 2017. Some states are a bit more cautious about their increases. So in Arkansas, uh, in November 2014, a ballot measure uh, was approved to see incremental increases to 850 by January 2017, so a year from now. And so South Dakota had a similar measure. Hawaii's gone up to 850 an hour. And then New Hampshire's sort of at nine. 
Um, Minnesota was interesting. So in April 14, there was the Dems in the state the legislation struck a deal to raise it to 950. And so there was a lot of reporting how in August, the following August, a cafe in Minnesota actually started charging people a minimum wage fee to offset the increase. Oh, like a like in addition yes. to tax, yes. in addition to yes. a tip, you paid a minimum yeah. wage fee. Yeah, so we were talking a bit before, but Denise, you were talking before about how, you know, businesses actually can't afford it and businesses have trouble and they, and they don't want to employ. So they, that, that business obviously said, right, well, if you want to impose a minimum wage, we're just going to pass this on to our customers. I mean, theoretically, that's what minimum wages would do anyway, but they made it really explicit and they put it on the bill. <laughs> and so people kind of, it, I, I suspect if you were a server working there, you would feel, it wouldn't feel that great. You'd be like, oh, sorry, this is the exact, this is the exact amount extra that you're, you're paying me. And it, it, I can it, imagine it, a state representative going into that cafe, getting their bill and being like, I get the picture. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, get your message yeah, loud and clear. Yeah. So there's a few other places, I mean, the more liberal states, so... Vermont has a measure that's gone up to 1050. Um, the really interesting thing is that the most progressive stuff is actually at city level, and it's sort of related to what I was talking about before. So if you're in Oregon, you're kind of doing well because the governor, Kate Brown, just this month uh, proposed a minimum wage of 15.52 an hour um, in Portland, more specifically, and 13.50 for the rest of the state, both by 2020. So it's an interesting example. Portland's a bigger city, so let's have 1552. Uh, again, in in uh, Los Angeles, uh, it's now at 15 uh, an hour. The city council voted that in, in June last year. Mountain View, uh, which is part of Silicon Valley, is fifth, going up to 15 by 2018. Hmm. So there's a lot of really specific. So you know, places like uh, Silicon Valley, you need to retain talent. Mm -hmm. And actually, Silicon Valley, I think they're sort of seeing the productivity starting to flatline. So you have to kind of keep giving people reasons to go there. That's really interesting to me, too, because a lot of the employees that are working at uh, or are working for tech startups in Silicon Valley or any of the companies that are based there are generally not going to be unionized. Mm. While on the other hand, employees in, let's say, like Burbank or Hollywood in general are going to be part of the Teamsters or part of the, the Screen Actors Guild, and so unions are going to be fighting quite a bit to keep uh, contracts and wages pretty high. Maybe you don't need the local municipality to bump it up. I think sort of just to round off, one, one of the, the final things I found was also very interesting. So we're talking about quite a big increase, some up to 50 an hour. None of this is happening overnight. So it's not sort of, okay, it's January 1st, you've gone from 725 or 850 and now you're at 15. Most of these are really, really slow incremental staged increases. So 2017, 2018... 2020 and even beyond. So what a big criticism is, is that $15 an hour now is a lot, but by 2020, how much is that actually going to be worth? Right, right. And you might be like, I suspect $15 in 2020 is going to be worth more than seven, eight, more 850 now. But if you're only increasing it to $10, like $10 in 2020 is probably kind of what eight or nine would be now. So they're seen as being, you know, the state Republicans are very sort of anti, oh, you're increasing these minimum wages by this time. Actually, what the effect is, is by 2020, it's just keeping par. Yeah. And when you think that the tip to minimum wage, so that's how much people in restaurants get, it has not changed in 25 years, and it's still under, I think it's $2.20 or thereabouts. It's certainly well under 250 These rates are not going up anywhere. And so we actually, the better than... The states who've done this better actually have, are tying them to the CPI, they're tying them to inflation. So, for example, Seattle's minimum wage, which went up uh, last year, I believe, uh, after it reaches $15 an hour, it, it then goes up 2.4% a year. So 
the, mm. the policies that are really effective are the ones that have built that in. They said, okay, we get up to a certain amount, and then we, we have it on a scale going up after that. As you're describing what's going on in each of the specific states, I'm getting this mental picture, sort of minimum wage topography map, and how there's you get some higher little peaks in the cities and valleys and the rural areas, and it goes back to the whole point that Jeff was making about how there's, there's no one-size-fits-all approach for the minimum wage. I was just wondering, I know in the Netherlands, for example, the minimum wage varies between the ages of 16 to 25. Does that happen in the U.S. at all? That's a really interesting question, and, and also something I looked into, too. So for them, I think it varies on state to state, but certainly the minimum wage below 18 or 19, or including 18 or 19 and below, is less. So, for example, um, in Michigan, in just last December, state Republicans had a proposal to cut the youth wage so if you're 18 or 19, to 85% of the adult wage. So you're actually finding things are going back. Uh, so in some places, you know, they're trying to raise the minimum wage. In some places, they're saying, well, okay, you can raise the adult minimum wage, but we'll try and cut the youth one. Because the argument is, is that, well, it's young people. They're only going to be in a short amount of time. They don't, they don't need all that extra money. And it means that businesses are much more likely to hire younger workers to work at places like Starbucks or grocery stores. And that sort of gets them into the wage market early on and they build it up. And what Jeff was saying was that higher minimum wages are hurting younger workers because it means that employers aren't willing to hire them, which means they don't get that early career experience and early job experience in at a younger age. Because if you're only getting into the job market at 20, that means you don't have three earning years behind you and you start out at the minimum wage, whereas a 20-year-old who's been working since they were, I don't know, 17, might be, be progressing up higher the pay scale. And so it's just better for everyone. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but it's an interesting point, certainly. I guess I should have expected to uncover some grim figures and facts with this topic when we're, when we're diving into who the economy isn't working for, but I'm not feeling super optimistic right now. No, it doesn't. I think looking at sort of Detroit and, and that's kind of retracting and becoming smaller and there doesn't seem to be much that we can do about it beyond, you know, making the city smaller and then thinking about the minimum wage is not necessarily this great panacea. It doesn't make me feel that positive about things necessarily. I guess we can go back to the fact that overall in the U.S. the economy is on the rise. It, we are in a completely different world right now than we were in 2008. And that's, that's the main thing going back to the State of the Union as we talked about at the head of the show. Obama wants to make it clear that he came in to a disaster and cleaned things up and then got things back on track generally. He'll admit that it's not working perfectly for everybody and there are holes in this economy, but at the same time, as you look at the, the entire country, it's a better place to be living and working right now than it was seven years ago. And just to sort of riff on that slightly, what I've sort of found from what I've looked at the minimum wage is that any solutions to these places, so it, it not being recovery fraud, they're not going to come from, from the federal government. They're not going to come from congressional action. They're going to come from either state legislatures bringing programs in, maybe minimum wage changes, but jobs programs, or and that's also related to local activists and people on the ground in community, or community organizations. So that's the big takeaway. It's not necessarily going to come from the center. It's got to come from the states. Does that mean that we can come up with a new phrase that all economics are local? Is oh, that? I like that. <laughs> That's trademarked now. All the ballpark 2016. All economics are local. 
Brilliant. So now it's time for a segment we like to call I Predict a Riot, where we give our accurate, possibly inaccurate predictions about the future of American politics and policy. So I'm going to go first. So my prediction is based on the weather, something in the UK that is one of the most important things here. Um, we recently saw the, the Jonas storm uh, inundate the East Coast with snow. Chris Christie went back to New Jersey despite his misgivings. So my prediction is we are going to see the increasing politicization of the weather going forward as you have Hurricane Sandy-like events, blizzard Armageddon, Snowmageddon events. Politicians are going to increasingly have to react to them quickly and take them into account just as much as they would as riots or court cases or any or other scandals. So keep an eye on the weather with global warming. It's going to get more interesting and it's going to become increasingly relevant for politics. Ooh. So I'm up next, right? Yeah. Okay. My prediction is a turn towards optimism, since I was sounding a little bit pessimistic earlier. I've seen in the last few years a lot of towns in um, what's been called the Rust Belt and a lot of small, particularly Midwestern towns, going through a sort of renaissance. My hometown, for example, Kankakee, Illinois, has a, a new brewery in town, has a neat little like arts center. It's, it's attracting some really interesting people, some artists, some innovators, and, uh, and new businesses. Basically, there's a small town revival going on. So what I'm going to say, here's my prediction. It's the long-term one. I don't know if we can see it panning out in the next six months. But I'm predicting that cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh and Cleveland are going to have a resurgence of this small town pride and the little businesses that make these places unique and cool. Very optimistic, but I think it's gonna happen. So my prediction is about the role of religion in elections, and I think that what we've been seeing recently shows that it's actually changing. In the past, the GOP has always been a party connected to very religious values and beliefs, and it was pretty unfathomable that we'd see that party throw their support, or at least the silent majority, so to speak, of the party, throw their support behind Donald Trump, who's, according to Pew, not seen as a very religious person. Recently, we've seen, though, that Donald Trump attended a church service in Iowa, receiving what many called a lesson in humility, which I thought was funny because I'm not sure Donald Trump knows what the word humility means. I think this contradicting information shows that maybe the role that religion plays in politics is changing today. It's interesting you brought up Trump and the religion because uh, a little while ago now he was at a Christian university and he misquoted 2 Corinthians. Oh, the 2 Corinthians. Yeah, the 2 Corinthians, which about 18 years of Catholic school beat him to the 2 Corinthians. But that was almost more of a blunder and that was more of a gaffe than all of these other things he said. I mean, he grabs headlines constantly because those people in the, the mainstream media are easily shocked by some of his extravagant sayings, but what was a little bit more of a hit with his supporters was when he didn't quote the Bible correctly. So even though you're predicting it might not be as much of a, of a issue or an indicator, it still matters to a lot of people, particularly Republican primary voters. Just as a quick plug for the USAT blog, we uh, did a post very recently that said that 
religiosity is seen as a marker of trust by voters. So they don't see atheists as being trustworthy. And so as long as people see religion as a mark of trust and morality, then it will be an important campaign thing. And actually, just speaking very very quickly as someone who isn't American and has sort of seen politics in Commonwealth countries where no one cares about religion, it is fascinating and unfathomable how seriously people take religion in politics, given that it's completely irrelevant, to my mind, in the day-to-day politics of what goes on uh, because of the separation of church and state. And then to have you know, someone religious views being on trial, essentially, for them to become president is kind of, it's very unusual. I'll leave it at that. Oh, gosh, we haven't even talked about Sarah Palin this time. And maybe, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> we just leave it with us. For another episode. And that means it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. We're going to put away the bleachers, pick up the beer bottles, and clear away the hot dog wrappers. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Sophie Donzelman and Denise Barron of the U.S. Center, and our interviewees, Michael Amio and Jeff Clemens. The Ballpark was produced with the help of the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're great. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark, or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about political campaigning, a timely topic for a turbulent primary season. This has been The Ballpark. Thanks for listening.